Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. WAB in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for listening. The Atlanta-born stand-up comedian and comedy writer Miss Pat, aka Patricia Williams, had a tough time early in life, and her comedy crackles with hard-edged realism. William's sitcom, The Miss Pat Show, finished its second season on BET Plus this fall and has already been picked up for a third season. Later this hour, City Light senior producer Kim Drobe speaks with Miss Pat about how her true life experiences inform the material for the show. Plus, speaking of art, our series of local visual artists today features the prolific muralist Chris Beale. First, Atlanta-based singer-songwriter Anita Isola is a musical mixologist, blending jazz and blues with classic rock and traditional Indian influence in her music. This Saturday, she'll share the stage with Ruby Bell and the Soul Phonics at Wild Heaven West End Brewery. Anita joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me, Lois. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're eager to hear about your musical background and love the description you (laughs) have of a musical mixologist. (laughs) Thank you. I uh, grew up in Michigan, actually. I'm, I'm a daughter of Indian immigrants and... I definitely feel that my music now is a reflection of somewhat of my unique upbringing. I was first generation growing up in Michigan. I studied classical piano starting at age five and also started studying Indian classical vocals from almost equally as young of an age and grew up in an Indian household with a lot of very traditional (laughs) Indian family influences there and Indian music all the time. But then 
also had all of these American influences in my life, just studying classical piano and then growing up in America and loving popular music, falling in love with jazz and blues. And, you know, along the way, all of these influences came together when I started to write. And I realized I really enjoyed feeling like this one person who could love all these different styles of music and have it show up authentically as an expression of who I am. Yeah, your 2018 album, Beyond Our Dreams, unpacks what it means to be American. How do each of the five songs on that EP speak to your experience of becoming an American citizen? Yes, it was that was a wonderful experience to to go through and and write the songs on that album and record them and really reflect on my place here in America. I think for a long time I felt neither American nor Indian, you know, neither fully in one place or the other and maybe felt like an outsider here for some time. And over time, you know, I I grew to really accept that I was this blend of different backgrounds and that was actually what makes me very American, (laughs) that I can feel very much a part of the American landscape and what that means and contribute to it and have pride in, in that contribution. And I think I do unpack that a great deal in that album. Some came here searching, some came here in chains. No matter what we all knew, we would never be the same. We all were hoping for a better way to live. We are America. Anita, why is your role as a political activist important to your music making? Well, Lois, that's a really good question. I didn't realize that it would be when I first started writing. I was in many ways a shy, (laughs) quiet type of person. And as I emerged and, you know, grew into adulthood, I recognized the importance of my voice and the importance of my participation in government and as a citizen, my responsibilities, and that I couldn't sit back and allow things to happen and it was my responsibility to actually try and make positive change and in general I started to feel that way more and more as I got older I didn't expect it to really emerge in my music in fact one of my songs Tourist in Every Town I wrote it years ago and I wrote it for my mother you know she was she's an Indian immigrant and came over here, had American children, essentially. And, you know, there was a long period where we had to really grow to understand each other and come to some middle ground. And it wasn't intended to be a political song at all, but it was interesting. There got to be a certain point where 
the rhetoric started to become anti-immigrant and suddenly these just explorations I was having or just being who I was felt almost like a political statement. in a way the beginning of it I felt like it was going to happen whether or not I really wanted it to that I didn't really I had less and less of a choice and it was important to me to stand up for what I really believe in and not be afraid to speak out about it and I think that really came to head about three years ago in Georgia when the heartbeat bill passed HB 481 and I was doing so much as a citizen. I do everything I can. I call my senators, I call my representatives, I vote, I try to vote in every single election, every primary, every local. And I still felt so helpless with what was going on. And so for me, music is catharsis. And so sometimes that is the place where I feel like I can channel my passion for different causes and so I really felt so strongly about this cause and about women's rights and human rights and what was happening was really upsetting to me and so I, I channeled that and wrote this song Heartbeat and you know that was a, a really important and powerful moment for me where I realized that that activism was going to show up in my music and I just had to allow it and I had to no longer be afraid of it. tremendous attention for it nationally in India as well. Yes, yes, thank you. Yes, I it really it brings me a lot of pride and also makes me feel like I have purpose and it, it makes me happy that so many people really connected with that song that it meant a lot to me and it also meant a lot to so many people. So many people feel so strongly about this. And there got to be a certain point where I felt like this song was bigger than me, you know, and that that was that's what gets me excited about music. It's like when you create something and it's out there in the world and it's it's really bigger than the individual. It's it's the art, it's the message, and that is really making strong connections with so many people and with the community and with the cause. Well, since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. How does this song resonate with you now? I feel like the message in this song is more important than ever. 
right now. And it's more relevant than ever. I wrote it three years ago um, before the Roe v. Wade decision, but I felt like it was a threat even at that time. And now here we are. And I hope it really serves as a reminder of how hard we will have to keep fighting for women's rights and showing up. And sometimes it might feel futile and hopeless, but I really think it's important that people do not lose hope and that they keep fighting for this cause because enough of us believe in it. And while this is a huge setback for women's rights, I do believe that the fight for women's rights is not over and we just need to keep going and fighting harder than ever. And so I hope that people listen to this song and are further inspired to keep fighting and to never stop. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with singer-songwriter Anita Isola. Let's talk about another song. Rumpelstiltskin is a song you co-wrote with your husband. Tell us the story behind this one. Wow. Yes, this is another song based on a political issue. And it was at the time that the child separation policy took place a few years back with the zero tolerance and so many children, young children, babies, so many people were being separated from their parents. And it was absolutely heartbreaking. And I, again, didn't know what to do. I tried to donate to various causes that were really fighting for these families and trying to reunite families. I tried to call my representatives again, but I saw this tragedy happening. A lot of us did, you know, watching it unfold and getting really upset by it. And I, again, felt like music was the place for me to then take another moment to express my outrage for this entire awful, awful policy. And I was talking with my husband about it and we've co-written before. We actually co-wrote Heartbeat as well. And he brought up the concept of Rumpelstiltskin. I mean, we have young children as well. And the concept of us being ripped away from our children, it's just too much to bear. And we had this book and it's just interesting. You know, we have all these fairy tales and we sometimes don't realize that they are pretty terrifying when you think about some of the fairy tales and they can get really dark. And so the story of Rumpelstiltskin kind of was an idea that we thought we would build off of for writing the song. So we kind of went down and just brainstormed and came up with a bunch of different lyrical ideas. And then, then I went ahead and finished the song with those concepts.
then, yes, I felt like it was just another political cause that needed to be spoken about and voiced. And even still, you know, we know that there still is such a huge problem. There's still families that are not reunited. And it's really sad to think about. But again, I hope that I hope that my music and that in general that I can use my voice for powerful ways to create thought provoking music and to spread important messages. I read that you performed at a private event, which included President Obama in the crowd. Would you tell us about that? That was a really unique experience. I (laughs) I was living in Washington, D.C., and I was invited to this private political fundraiser. And it was the first time that President Obama was going to be visiting an Indian American home. And so interestingly enough, they called upon me because I play the sitar as well. I am a classically trained pianist and Indian vocalist, but I also have a background playing sitar and studied that for a couple of years and incorporate that in some of my work. And so someone found out that I play sitar and invited me to come do a show at this event. And so I played some classical sitar, and then I also played some of my own work. And it was, again, kind of similar to right now with something promoting, you know, the midterm elections at the time. This was many years ago now, probably about 10 years ago, or now probably 12, and I think about 2010 elections, I believe. And so it was at that time, and President Obama came in and gave a speech, and I had a chance to meet him. It was a huge honor. And... uh yeah, I'm I'm very honored to have had that opportunity to share my work in, in such a remarkable space and situation. And Did he comment on the music? His entrance and absence was so orchestrated that it was hard for him to witness as much of the actual music, if that makes sense. He was there and you were there. He was there and I was there and I got to play. Exactly. But it was, you know the other senators and things like that, they were all excited about the music. But when President Obama arrived, it's like everything kind of stops and then Secret Service is bringing him in and he spoke and then we all line up and we meet him and then he's orchestrated out. You know, it's like a very, it's, you know, because it's president, it's the president. So, and it was at someone's home. So it was so specifically orchestrated that it was hard for him to comment on my music. However, I still feel this was just such an incredible honor and opportunity for me. And I'm so grateful I've had a chance to do it. Oh, of course, it's you. <laughs> this Saturday, you're sharing the stage with another South Asian female powerhouse, Ruby Bell. How does it feel to perform with another Atlanta-based artist who has a similar background as you and also performs jazz and soul-imbued music. Oh, it feels incredible, Lois. I am so thrilled. I've known Ruby for a few years now, and I'm so proud to call her a friend. Um, She's such a remarkable person, and she's an incredible musician and singer and an absolute powerhouse. And... You know, I think one of the things that Ruby does and that hopefully we both do is we really like to 
lift each other up. And I feel like as artists and as women, we really like to support each other and, and be that type of presence. And I, I think Ruby does that. And so in a way we've been supporting each other's music for years now, but this is the first time that we're actually sharing a bill together. And it means a lot to me. I, I just feel like it's pretty rare, you know, in Atlanta to see South Asian fronted bands and acts. So to actually create an evening that is deliberately celebrating that, I think is really meaningful. And, you know, to me over the last few years, there seems to be so much more awareness of, you know, Indian cultural heritage here in America. And even just the way we talk about Diwali now, the way it's now a school holiday at some schools. And I went to each of my children's schools to talk about Diwali and to have us talk about the meaning of Diwali and the significance of it. And it, it was such a sharp contrast to how I grew up when there wasn't a lot of awareness of my heritage or where I came from, and it wasn't even discussed. And so now to have come such a, a long way from that to all the way in the other end, where I feel like the Indian American and the South Asian population in America are very much recognized as part of the American fabric now. And, and that makes me so happy. And I think that's part of what makes this show really meaningful to me is it it's showing again highlighting and celebrating these two south asian women indian american women who are now really you know fixtures of the atlanta music scene <laughs> you know not just in america but also here in atlanta which is just such a beautifully diverse rich city full of culture full of the arts and i think that this show celebrates that and is I I'm I'm just thrilled to do it and I'm I'm so excited to share this evening with Ruby. Atlanta singer-songwriter Anita Isola. Her show with Ruby Bell and the Soul Thonics is Saturday at Wild Heaven West End Brewery. By the way, Ruby is celebrating the 10th anniversary of her debut album, It's About Time, with a reissue of the vinyl album for the first time since 2015. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, comedian Miss Pat sits down with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes and explains how the true details of her life have become a hit BET Plus TV show. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. 
That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. The Atlanta-born stand-up comedian and comedy writer, Ms. Pat, a.k.a. Patricia Williams, has truly seen it all. Her comedy crackles with hard-edged realism, which is not surprising given that Ms. Pat overcame an early life on the streets, has been shot twice, served jail time, and raised two kids she had as a teenager. Her sitcom, The Miss Pat Show, finished its second season on BET Plus this fall and has already been picked up for a third season. When she visited with City Light senior producer Kim Drobes this summer, Pat began by explaining what a viewer needs to know about her background before watching the show. Just know that I'm real. I mean, I love to brief people like, hey, I am your nice convicted felons, okay? I made a, quite a few mistakes, but we're going to laugh through it. So what is the premise of the Miss Pat show? It's based about 98% of my life. So it takes a lot of my life stories and it puts it on the strings. That's why we're able to talk about things that most regular TV won't, won't allow you to talk about. So we go deep, we go dark. I like I try to teach my comedy audience, we try to teach my my TV audience that you can take any pain in your life and find the funny in it. That's how you start to heal. That is a beautiful way to live. And indeed, the Ms. Pat show often makes a point of addressing real issues that real people deal with. Would you mind sharing some examples? I did an episode uh, in the first season where I have I have a gay daughter. And, you know, me being born in the South, you know how we raise and how we think it. So I opened myself up to show how ignorant I was to the fact. And it showed no matter what my daughter chooses to do, I still love my daughter no matter what. So that was a really great episode for us. Another one was uh, getting my power back from the, from the man, which was her father, who treated me wrong. I had a very bad relationship with him. He was married. I was really young. So we did a great episode on that. That's the episode that's nominated for the Emmy. And, you know, just real life. We did In second season, we tackle molestation. We tackle black hair. We tackle struggling in relationships. We tackle why black people don't go to counseling. We did all of that. Wow, you really are digging deep. The episode that's nominated for the Emmy. Can we dig into that a little more? You said that you were young when you were with him. How young is young? When I met him, I was 12. He was 22, married with a wife with a baby on the way. I got pregnant at 13 and gave birth to my first child at 14. And then I had another child by my, when I was 15. Very abusive relationship. Spent about 10 years with this guy. And in the episode, you would see him come back to be the daddy that he ain't gonna never be. And you just see each one of the, my family members kind of 
help me take my power back from him. Wow. So you mentioned your family. How close is your family on the show to your real family? All the way down to the names. <laughs> my son really is named Junebug. I have a daughter named Ashley. But the characters that the actors play, I mean, we really took my real kids and put them into these characters on TV. Sometimes I have to forget these people on TV is not my family. <laughs> Yeah, that's got to be a little bit odd. I mean, you're running completely parallel to your life. And congratulations, by the way, on returning for a second season. That's no easy feat for any sitcom. How has the show been received so far? You know, when it first came out, you know, people people had their opinions. But I think the ones who with us is with us now. Even when the co-creator was like, oh, I want you to be like yourself every day. I want you to curse. And I was like, nobody's going to let a big black woman get away with cursing her kids out on TV, even though I do it every day in life. And he was like, we find the right home. And so many people come to my show like, oh, my God, Miss Pat. That's how I talk to my kids. Oh, my God, Miss Pat. This is my family. And I was like, okay, we kind of struck gold. People finally wanted something real. So they're, I mean, they're eating it up. No, I mean, from all walks of life, all color life. You know, it's it's so funny because I, I have such a diverse audience. So in the Ms. Pat show, your main character finds herself and her family suddenly transplanted from Atlanta to suburban Indiana. And you have real life history with both of these places. What are the differences in these settings that challenge the show's Ms. Pat the most? <laughs> I think living in Indianapolis, it was such a culture shock for me. You know, I'm from the inner city of Atlanta. I guess you say the hood, the ghetto or whatever. But when you get thrown into a conservative middle class neighborhood, it's, it was a culture shock for me. <laughs> so never would have thought I would have, you know, created a TV show. But I could sit out on my porch every day and write an episode. I said, we are not the same. Yeah. So do you ever get feedback from folks who live in Indiana about the show's portrayal of Indiandans and their culture? No, no ma'am. I, I lived in Indiana for 15 years. I know my neighborhood. I don't have to make up anything. I lived it each and every day. Like <laughs> I started going to the Goodwill because of white people. I mean, they would go and they would have a painter Teresa Tabor day. And everybody in the neighborhood would go over there and help Teresa paint that table. I said, now, how interesting is this? And then they were, I learned how to coupon from living in my white neighborhood. That's why the second episode on the first season were couponing. And they kicked me out of the couponing club because I was treating the coupon like dope money. What do you mean like dope money? Girl, I was balling it up, putting it in my chest. I, they was all organized with their little coupon books. And I couldn't understand why they were so organized. And I got my stuff. I'm taking it out with rubber bands around it. They was like, nah, you can't be in the club. <laughs> so tell us about your experience shooting the first and second season. Do you shoot with a live audience? We do shoot with a live audience. I mean, we have a live party every week. You hear me? You have not seen an audience like the one at the Miss Pat show. This is the first time they ever had a live studio audience in Atlanta, Georgia for a sitcom too. So, you know, me and the co-creator Jordan E. Cooper was able to bring that here to Atlanta. And it took a minute for before people caught on, but I'm telling you, we have so many repeats this season, this last season. We had to start to turn away people. So many people was coming out. Where is it filmed? It's filmed off of Boat Rock, down off by Fortune Industrial. Mm -hmm. Well, earlier this year, you released your one-hour comedy special, Y'all Want to Hear Something Crazy, via Netflix. 
and you devote the time to sharing what it's like growing up poor and black in the 1980s. It is directed by Robert Townsend and produced by Wanda Sykes. How did you get connected with those two comedy legends? Well, I knew I knew Wanda from just, you know, just doing comedy, you know, here and there. And I knew she was doing a, uh, she had a production company where she was producing a lot of women stand up for Netflix. So she was the first person I grabbed. And then the next person I had to go out after that wasn't easy was Robert Townsend. And it was a, such a joy working with him. I, le- I learned so much. He do not play about comedy. And when I tell you I had to rehearse for him once a week for two to three hours a day, it, it was not easy. I was like, I don't think they're going to work out. But he knew what he was talking about. And that special, the audience in it, it's so interesting to me because you spend time telling stories that are both true and outlandish because this is your life. How do you handle an audience that maybe can't keep up with the wild ride? Well, you know, it's nothing I can do if you can't if you can't handle it. You can go home and relieve your babysitter. I'm at the point, I'm 50 years old. I cannot worry about you trying to rearrange my career. I'm going to do me if whoever's for me going to come to me. It's the same way with Chick-fil-A. When they put out their little crazy memos and say what they got to say, no matter what, people stick with Chick-fil-A. So I am the Chick-fil-A of of comedy. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So let's talk about your podcast, The Pat Down with Ms. Pat. What kind of topics do you talk about? We just talk about everyday life, to be honest with you, what went on between the three co-hosts. I mean, I might have a bad day. They might have a good day. We don't plan it. We just get there and we talk. That's what I love about it. Tell me about your co-hosts. One of them name is Chris Spangle. He used to work, he works on the Bob and Tom show. And when I was in Indiana, I used to do the Bob and Tom show a lot. And the other one is a comedian who's sometime over for me named Dion Curry. Nobody special, just people I made friends with when I moved to Indiana. And Joe Rogan was like, you should start a podcast. And so I decided to start one. And I grabbed the two, first two people I knew that could read out loud. That's a good role. So on one episode last year, you spoke about having once been a nanny. Would you mind sharing that experience? Oh, yeah, girl. I used to be a nanny. <laughs> I used to keep all the white kids in Buckhead. And uh, whew, I wanted to whoop everybody. It didn't last long. <laughs> One lady checked my background and told me she, my check was in the mail. So I was like, this ain't going to work out for me. Do you have a favorite episode that you've recorded thus far? Uh, yeah, the favorite episode for me this year, I think I have two. One is a, a robbery episode where we get robbed. I think that's hilarious. But the more groundbreaking for me is the Black Hat episode where I did an episode about how as a kid, my mama would call me nappy headed. And she would say, my sister look a lot better than I do. And to me, that's where the trauma started with, with my hair, yeah. with my mama telling me, it was nappy. It was kinky and making me think as a kid that there was something wrong because so many other other black girls have heard those words or have gone through those things. And I just wanted to do an episode on because I had never seen it done like that before. Yeah. No one wants to be told they're not good enough, especially from their mom. Yeah, but that's right. One thing I learned, hurt people hurt people realized I was in a cycle. I was on this train. It wasn't going nowhere. So I just went on ahead and got my transfer and got off. Good for you. And you mentioned earlier, you know, a stigma around therapy in the black community. You talk as though you have had some therapy in your life and you have gotten your stuff straight. 
when did you get exposed to talk therapy? Uh, I ain't never been no therapist. I ain't gonna never lie to you. You haven't. No, comedy has been my therapy. I mean, I mean, you can either sit down with somebody with a degree or you can sit down with your girlfriend. No matter who, no matter what, you just spilling your beans to whoever. That's just an educated person with some glasses sitting on their nose and listen to you. Your girlfriend is the same therapy. My audience is the same therapy. Comedy allowed me to let a lot of things go in my life. Comedy was healing for me. You know, people go, people get therapy different ways. And for me, it was hitting that stage, telling 200 people or 20 people a night what the heck I had been through. And we could all laugh and I could hear people going out the door, Miss Pat, I went through the same thing. That's how I healed. That's how I forgave. Comedian Miss Pat, her sitcom, the Miss Pat Show returns next year for season three on BET Plus and her podcast, The Pat Down with Miss Pat, is available for weekly download via your favorite podcast provider. More information is on our website at wabe.org slash City Lights. The renowned poet Rita Dove has said poetry is language at its most distilled and most powerful. Georgia poet Chelsea Rathburn and the Georgia Council for the Arts recently announced the winner and finalists for this year's Ninth Annual Poet Laureate Prize awarded to a Georgia high school student for an original poem. The winner of that distinction is Atlanta's Midtown High School senior, Aaron Sonajoshi. He joins me now via Zoom to talk more about his award-winning poem, The Stargazer. Aaron, welcome to City Lights. Um, hi, thank you for having me. When did you first become interested in writing poetry? Um, well, I've always been interested in writing, but until the beginning of the pandemic, I was mainly a fiction and journalism person, but... Starting uh, when everything went virtual, I had a lot of free time on my hands, and because I was inside, just a lot of time to think. And I decided that I wanted to try something new, put some of those thoughts into words in a different form. So I really started experimenting with poetry properly then. Mm. Who are some poets and fiction writers who inspire your own literary work? Well, I read pretty a pretty diverse uh, base of things. Pretty recently I was reading some a poetry collection by Clint Smith and uh, that was pretty cool. Um, I actually read a lot of Roman poetry for, I'm a big student in like uh, Latin, Greek, that kind of thing, so it's been kind of interesting to weave that into some of my poems. And then as far as fiction writers, I mean there's a lot pretty recently, so it's been on my mind. I was reading The Road by Cormac McCarthy oh, and yes. A Little Life, both fantastic books. I read you are a Lincoln-Douglas debater and an editor for your school student newspaper, The Southerner. How have those skill sets, debating and journalism, 
helped you become a better writer? Both debate and journalism uh, require writing, and it's a different style of writing. But there's a lot of crossover, I feel, in the way that I think creative writers, journalists, debaters all kind of think about things. I mean, they're all different ways of processing the information that we get in the world that we see around us and making it more accessible to people. In debate, you're presenting that as an argument. In journalism, as a reported story. And creative writing has many genres. But I think functionally, it comes down to a very similar thought process and idea. Hmm. How did you react to hearing that you won this year's Poet Laureate Prize? Um, I was really surprised. Actually, I didn't see the email at first. It went to my spam folder, but my parents... Oh, no. Well, you could write a poem about that. Yeah, it was kind of surprising because I wasn't sure when it was coming out. Then I just got a text from my parents who did get the email. And it was pretty surprising because, I mean, this was not the poem that I was originally going to submit to the competition. I was going to submit one of my earlier works and then a little bit before the competition, like I think either the day of or two days before, I decided that I didn't really feel like that was the poem that truly represented me at the time. But I had been thinking about some different stuff and I thought that might be interesting. So I compiled that into this poem and sent it out. So because it was a little bit last minute, I didn't really think I had much of a chance, but I guess I did. My goodness. Would you read your poem, The Stargazer? Um, yeah, of course. Glow-in-the-dark stars gleam with soft green radiance, accepting, absorbing the light of day until they shine. On sleepless nights, I trace shapes among the plastic lights, memorizing every star. I imagine that I am lying in a field of grass under the hot, sticky air and finding constellations in the vaulted sky. My teacher says that stars are made of flaming gas, but I prefer my grandmother's explanation. She tells me that stars are the souls of our ancestors, so ancient they can only watch from afar. And she holds me with hands that are now thin and bony and covered with papery skin, but still strong. The pavement is hard against my back and the cool air is sharp, hostile. It whispers through the streets and I am exposed. I lift my hand towards the sky, trying to find the shapes, but these are not the stars and they dance just out of reach, flitting away like silvery fish just beneath the surface of a dark river. What happened to glow-in-the-dark stars and constellations and dreams of warm summer nights? When did the stars go so far away? Mm. I especially admire the stanza. My teacher says that stars are made of flaming gas, but I prefer my grandmother's explanation. I just love your description of your grandmother saying that stars are the souls of your ancestors, so ancient they can only watch from afar. When did she tell you that? My grandmother was a big inspiration for this poem. She was the one who first bought the glow-in-the-dark stars that ended up on my ceiling. And I don't exactly remember when I heard this, but it's just a line that always kind of stuck with me. It was sometime when I was pretty young, might have even been before I started school. But, I mean, I've always been interested in the stars. And, I mean, we're not super religious, but we're a Hindu family. And, I mean, stars and astrology are all very important to our culture. And my grandmother is uh, pretty religious, so 
Midtown High School senior, Aronsonat Joshi. He is the winner of this year's Georgia Poet Laureate Teen Prize. You can read his poem, The Stargazer, on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, our series of local artists in their own words, speaking of art. Today, featuring the prolific muralist Chris Veal, amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's time now for our segment, Speaking of Art, where we hear some of Atlanta's creative artists in their own words. Hi, my name is Chris Ville. I'm an artist here in Atlanta. I paint mostly murals and canvas work. I like to work in a few different styles, but the one that I'm most known for is kind of a pop art with social commentary style. Uh, Subjects I tend to focus on range from addiction, pollution, traffic, and current events. When making work, I like to use bright and bold colors and use thick, dark outlines to really make the work pop. When I was younger, I was always a kid that was drawing in class and getting in trouble for drawing. And I never really got out of that phase. And when I moved to Atlanta, my best friend at the time was getting into doing graffiti and using spray paint as a medium. So I got into it with him. And I really took to it and enjoyed it a lot. And I ended up uh, searching Craigslist for small painting jobs. And I would pick up little gigs on Craigslist. And I would paint my friends' rooms and their living rooms and post all the work on uh, social media and After a while, people started messaging me and asking, hey, can you paint my wall or, you know, can you paint my my job or my business? And I just kept taking jobs like that and it kind of uh, just turned into, you know, my career. Things that inspire my work would be the city, the news, stuff I come across on Reddit or social media, uh, things I just find funny in general uh, with the changing city. Most of my motivation comes from uh, really just seeing my friends doing cool work. When I see uh, someone I know that does a really cool piece or a really big piece, uh, it kind of gets me excited to try to create something cool to show. And, uh, you know, it kind of makes me want to step my game up when I see them, you know, creating such awesome pieces. I was born in uh, Milledgeville, Georgia. I moved to Atlanta when I was 17. It's always just kind of really felt like home to me. I've traveled a lot and always seem to come back to Atlanta. Uh, I love the weather here. I love that you're a short drive to the mountains. We've got a good airport to fly out of. You know, you can take a quick trip to the beach. I've kind of grew up in the city and just really learned a lot and grew as an artist here. The art scene in Atlanta really is makes it a big part of me being here too. I really enjoyed all the galleries and murals and uh, just everybody that's in the art scene here is really cool and I, I really like that a lot. My favorite place to go see new work is really just wherever there's a new mural going up. The city's growing so fast and there seems to be new murals going up almost every week, so that's 
kind of where I go to see new pieces is just wherever someone's painting a new mural. Other than that, I will check out group shows a lot. I really like going to ABV and Cat Eye Gallery, Free Market, galleries like this uh, in Old Fourth Ward, Cabbage Town area a lot. Uh, these are kind of my favorite places to see new work. For people that want to see my work in person, you can go by Cat Eye Creative. They have a couple of my paintings there. And the print shop in Pont City Market carries a couple of my prints. But the best place to see my work is really just murals around town. Check them out. Hope you enjoy them. And for anyone that has social media, I can be found on there at uh, C.A. Veal. Artist and muralist Chris Veal. And our series, Speaking of Art. More information about Veal's work is on our website, wabe.org. George Frederick Handel's Oratorio, The Messiah, is among the most famous works in the classical repertoire. On Friday and Saturday, the Atlanta Baroque Orchestra and singers with the Cathedral of St. Philip Scola will recreate the original piece, which premiered in Dublin in 1742. Artistic director Julie Andrushevsky shared the backstory to Handel's marvelous oratorio. Its premiere took place on April 13th of 1742 in Dublin, Ireland, and it was an instant success. The sacred oratorio illuminates the life of Jesus Christ, who is, of course, the Christian Messiah. The texts that make up the libretto were compiled by Charles Jennings from the King James Bible, and the Book of Common Prayer. And they're divided into three parts, the coming of Jesus and the nativity in part one, his suffering, crucifixion, and resurrection in part two, which includes the famous Hallelujah Chorus, and his role as savior in part three. Atlanta Baroque Orchestra musicians will perform with historical instruments that were popular during Handel's time, some even earlier. My violin, for example, is an Amati family instrument dating from 1634. Others will play reproductions of 18th century instruments, either violins or trumpets or timpani. Whether new or old, all of our stringed instruments are in what we call their original setup with thicker necks and bridges, uh, strings made of gut, and no chin rests or end pins. This setup, combined with our historically informed playing techniques, produces a round, pristine, clear sound that is, is more speech-like in its approach than the sound considered ideal on modern instruments. 
Several renowned soloists will also perform with the Cathedral of St. Philip Scola and Atlanta Baroque Orchestra. The performance will be held at the Cathedral of St. Philip on Peachtree Road. More information is available on the website at latabaroque.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Israeli classical pianist Enon Barnaton joins us ahead of his upcoming concerts with the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with the Atlanta singer-songwriter Anita Isola, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find a complete archive of our stories, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.